Guys, I want to thank the following sponsors of the podcast. I want to thank GoHunt.com, my friend Cody Nelson of 25 plus years. I call him the glassing guru. He's the optics authority. He's the optics manager at GoHunt.com gear shop. If you guys have any interest in purchasing optics at all or have any questions, give Cody a call directly at 702-847-8747. That's extension 2. You can also email him directly at optics at gohunt.com or call him or text him on his cell phone, 602-399-3699. I want to thank GoHunt Optics Department uh, for their sponsorship of this podcast. I also want to thank the GoHunt Insider. Remind you guys that if you go to gohunt.com forward slash Scott, you're going to get a $50 GoHunt Gear Shop gift card just for signing up. I also want to thank Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. You can find out more about Kuyu, which is the gear that I wear on all of my uh, hunts. Uh, I also wear it on my fishing trips. Uh, pretty much everything I wear you can go to k- their website, which is kuyu.com, K-U-I-U.com uh, to find out more. It's also a direct consumer website, so you won't find this in any retailers. You can order directly off the website. Go to kuyu.com, K-U-I-U.com. Uh, phonescope.com, use the jscott20 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount on all orders. Guys, I also want to tell you about a new sponsor of the podcast, Kyle Lynch, who is also a former Army Ranger who served with the 2nd Battalion, the 75th Ranger Regiment in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, Kyle has also been a deputy sheriff and volunteer firefighter, and he is really involved on the tactical side. Uh, He is actually co-owner of a company based in Georgia uh, called Armageddon Gear. Uh, They do a ton of stuff that serves the military and commercial tactical and competitive shooting markets. Uh, But he has designed a really cool elk call carrier, and he's launched a new website called allelk.com. Uh, go check out the Bugle Mule. The Bugle Mule is a mouth call, elk call carrier uh, that is, um, he's made it where it fits right out on the outside of a bugle tube. It carries up to three calls. Uh, go check it out at allelk.com. For a limited time, the J. Scott Outdoors uh, podcast listeners can get a 10% discount there at allelk.com. Uh, put in the promo code JSO10 for 10% off. I want to thank allelk.com. I want to thank Kyle for his service to our country. And I want to thank him for the sponsorship of this podcast. Guys, without these podcast sponsors, uh, I wouldn't be able to put the amount of time that I do into this. Uh, So I want to thank them and I want to thank you. Let's get right into the episode. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have a friend of the podcast, Chris Rowe. And we just had an awesome episode uh, that uh, Chris and I talked about, the video where he shot the bull and um, thought he had a great hit, but it turned out to be a marginal hit and all of the ups and downs that went with it. Uh, the good news is Chris got the bull, got all the meat, uh, but he rode the roller coaster that a bunch of us have, have ridden. And it was, uh, you know, it brought back so many memories watching the video because Chris does not cut anything. And you can see all of the emotions. Uh, you can see him break down, which all of us have been in that same situation where you know, you're you're basically just uh, at the lowest point. Uh, I think uh, watching this video, you know, it's it's just amazing to see how much as hunters, how much we love this, and how much how important it is to us to make a a great hit and recover the animal. And we've all gone through those situations, um, and that was a great episode. Today, we're going to talk about uh, preparation for the elk hunts. Uh, our season is is coming upon us fast, and um, I'm anxious to talk to Chris today with Row Hunting Resources about how he's getting prepared for the season. We're going to talk a little bit about trail cameras. We're going to talk a little bit about glassing, um, but I, I'm excited to hear of, of, of Chris's prep and and his gear and some of the stuff. So, uh, Chris, how you doing? Doing all right, my friend. How are you? Good. I'm anxious to have you on today to um, talk again. You know, we get so much great feedback from uh, the listeners here um, uh, about our episodes. And and not only that, but uh, guys, go over to Row Hunting Resources and check out that elk module. And I get emails back of how excited guys are. And, you know, the common theme is guys saying, you know, 
I finally have something where I can go through all of the different sounds and all of the different behaviors of the elk. And it's such a comprehensive module. Um, I, my hat's off to you for doing such a great job. Well, I appreciate it. And, and I will say that, you know, it exists because of our subscribers. We don't, you know, I'm, I'm on pro staff for a couple different folks, but you know, pro staffs don't pay you anything really. They just, I mean, you, you've got some perks, but this is not, you know, this is made possible by the guys in the guys and gals out there that listen to this, that are subscribers. And so, you know, the more, you know, Lord willing, you guys, you guys want me to do this. You guys continue to support us. We will continue to put video up there and, and make it into, I mean, I think it is already the best resource out there, but we will keep stacking it and keep adding more videos and make it even better. So. Chris, I know we've got elk season coming up and I know you've, uh, you know, you hunt the over the counter, um, uh, Colorado hunt as much as you possibly can. I, I wanted to ask you kind of what formulated your philosophy of hunting elk and the row hunting resources. You know, what shaped that? What molded that uh, philosophy of yours? Well, I, to be honest, I think it, it, it really uh, came from what a lot of other people have to deal with. You know, I started, I started elk hunt. I, I grew up not in the, not out what I didn't grow up elk hunting. I started elk hunting 20 years, actually. Yeah. Yeah. It's 2015. Yeah. 20 years ago. Um, and when I finally moved out West. And so when I really got into it, I was in college, I was finishing up my degree and, uh, I, I hunted a little bit while I was in the military in Washington state, but that was a lot of late season hunts because we were always doing maneuvers and stuff during September. So I really got, you know, kind of started cutting my teeth on, you know, September elk hunting, the magical time of September elk, bow, you know, bow hunting elk when I was in college. And so, you know, I paid my way through school. I worked three jobs plus the, the Army college fund and GI Bill to pay for school. So my time was limited. And so there was myself and a buddy that we would leave, we we would head out. Uh, after class on a Friday evening, we'd go to the cafeteria, wolf down food, get in the truck, and we'd leave, and we'd get to the, you know, camp, you know, wherever we're at the trailhead is 11 p.m. or whatever, and we would hike in from there, and so we'd get into camp, whether it was midnight, one, two, three in the morning, and we would hunt Saturday, Sunday morning, and then we, we, we could, we just quit. We knew that if we killed something Sunday evening, there's no way we'd be able to get it out. And so we would just quit Sunday afternoon and then just head back so we could be back Monday morning for class and, and for work. So when you're talking about, you know, yeah, I was able to hunt maybe a couple weekends, but when you're talking about your, your elk trip is a day and a half, we were always finding elk, but it, it got down to the point where I've got to, I've got to figure out a way to be a heck of a lot more efficient with what I'm doing, how I'm doing it. And getting an animal on the ground. And at the same time, here are all these other people that are out in the field uh, running around the hills with us. You know, Colorado, if, if folks haven't hunted Colorado, um, I, and, I'm, and I'm starting to get feedback from some of you guys that are listening maybe in Oregon. Oregon sounds like it's, it's very similar to Colorado. And just the insane amount of hunter pressure some of our areas get. I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, I, when when you pull into a trailhead and literally it is, it, people are double parking over top of one another because, and they're all hunters. They're not hikers. They're all hunters. They're double parking because they're just trying to pack into a trailhead. And you see, you know, a half a dozen to a dozen different hunters or groups of hunters on the trail, on the mountain, each day that you're out there, It, it it's it's insane. So at some point you say, okay, I've got to do something different than all these other people are doing if I'm going to make wise use of my time and actually put something on the ground. And so that right there, I think, was the start of the wheels turning in my head saying, okay, and at the same time, that's when I got on the pro staff with Primos. I was doing seminars, and at the same time, I was doing the elk study, uh, and I worked for several years on that elk study where we and my my job in the summer was to literally hike up the hill and camp up above different groups of elk for a week at a time and record behavioral observations we were looking at cow calf interactions so 
I, come on, it's a dream job. And so, and, and to be clear, Chris, too, um, your background and your education is is wildlife biology, correct? You're right. I, I did. Yes. Yeah. I'm a wildlife biologist. I went to school for for to become a wildlife biologist. But my passion has always been, and I kind of specialized in behavioral ecology uh, and 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 related sorts of studies. So when I was working this elk study. Here I am. I'm, I'm just loving it. I'm, I'm getting to watch behavioral interactions. But while you're up there watching these behavioral interactions, you can't help but listen to them. And that's kind of it all just kind of just started to meld together. Here I am. I'm watching these elk. I'm watching what they're doing all summer long. I'm listening to them. I'm hearing them communicate. I'm watching the outcomes. Now comes September. I've got very limited time to hunt. I start seeing, I take what I saw the previous summer and say, well, what if I do this? And what if I do that? And what if I did this vocalization that I heard over here? And sure enough, bam, 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 I am now a heck of a lot more successful, a lot quicker than I ever was. And that kind of went, wait a minute. No, 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 no. This isn't random. This isn't, this isn't just gibberish. These animals are saying very specific things. I'm using these very specific things with success. What's going on in the winter? I wonder if I can double check that. And so on, that's where we continued our work in the winter, you know, on the sun, on the winter range. But it was always that core of I, I'm hunting. I'm solo. Hunt, I don't normally hunt. You know, if I hunt with somebody, I'm typically by default, I guess. And I don't complain about this. I don't mind it. But I'm typically the the guy that's doing the calling, making the decisions, where are we going to go, how are we going to go, where are we going to set up. You know, people just kind of fall back and defer to me, which is fine. So regardless if I'm hunting with someone or not, I usually am still on a solo hunting type mode. So I'm by myself 90% of the time, over-the-counter units with everybody else out there. I'm dealing with public land hunters, public land elk that are pressured. I just, you know, when I started out, I just wanted to figure out how do I do this more efficient and how do I maximize my success in the limited amount of time as possible. And then the other flip side of that is because of the fact that there's so many other hunters out there, I really started to develop, I guess, my philosophy of I'm going to do the the, the least amount of calling that I possibly can because, A, I don't want the bull getting fired up because as soon as he starts bugling six other guys are going to come walking up the hill after him and likewise if i if i personally do a whole pile of calling someone's going to hear me calling and and there's going to be six other guys walking up the hill here they come so if i can slip into a situation and make three vocalizations and a bull just simply muse at me turns around and walks in and i kill him I am a happy camper. The only time I want somebody to know that there's an elk in that valley or in that set of timber is when it's on the back of my on the back of my horse or on my back in my backpack headed out. I'm done. <laughs> you, you, you guys have fun. Yep, he was there. Ha ha. So, <laughs> so I that's, think that's kind of where my philosophy started. That's great stuff. So the magic question, Chris, and I'm sure you've gotten it before, is. As much public land, as much um, over-the-counter hunting, and talking specifically archery elk hunting, what is the magic formula? Is there an elevation? Is there a certain basin type? What can people consistently look for, and they will find elk? That and, and you, yeah, that is probably one of the number one questions I get. And unfor- well, let me just take a step back for where. Most of my questions come from are folks that are hunting Colorado. The unfortunate or fortunate, depending on how you want to look at it, deal is with Colorado, we have such a diversity of terrain and habitat types that to just pigeonhole it, it, there's no way. There's places where I elk hunt that is at 13,000 feet, way above tree line. But then there's other places that I hunt that is literally – uh, between five and 7,000 feet in elevation, and it's down in the Ponderosa Pine and Oak Brush. So there are so many different habitats, and there's so many different opportunities. The first thing I ask folks to identify for me is, okay, where, where do you want to hunt? Are, are you very, very physically fit? Are you in great shape? Can you run? And, I, and I'm, I'm smiling as I say this because we've had the discussion about fitness, and I heard your discussion about fitness, but... Um, you need, you need to be in shape, especially if you're going to run the big mountains. But 
Hey, wait a minute. I guess can you say hate mail? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, bet. I bet. I did. I just did the podcast with the Gritty Bowman, and um, yes. yeah, yeah, we've had some fitness discussions in it. You're better off. Uh, you would be better off. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, everybody's entitled to their own perspective, and that's uh, yeah. you know I respect everybody's opinion for sure. But if you're going to hunt the big mountains, yes, you do have to be in shape. And so, is that the type of experience that you want? Do you have the physical fitness to do that? Okay, well, if you want to hunt the big mountains, all right. Well, Colorado's got them. If you want to hunt. You know, the lower elevation stuff. Maybe you, maybe your family, you know, vacations, at, you know, around a certain lake or, or somewhere, and you're just familiar with this particular area. Okay, start with where you are comfortable and familiar with, because that's in the back of your mind, subconsciously, mental toughness is going to be a big part of whether you're successful and, and how long you can stay out and how you, how long you can stay with it. So, if in the back of your mind you're comfortable with the area and you like the area and there's some sort of co- you know connection to the area, it's going to help you in the long run. So figure out where you want to start. And then the next thing that I do is you one or two things. I really do look at the statistical data. What does the state while and I, and I don't care if it's to Idaho, Arizona, Washington, Colorado, New Mexico, doesn't matter. Does your state wildlife agency have data on traditional elk areas. You know, where's their summer range? Where's their winter range? Where are their calving areas? Where are the move? That type of stuff. In Colorado, we are fortunate. The state of Colorado does make that information available. However, there is also another resource, and it's the Hunt Data CD folks. I, they don't owe me a dime. I don't owe them a dime. I, I'm not associated with them. It's just a product I use. They assemble this information and make it available. And so I will look wherever I want to go. I will look at that information. Where are the summer range? Where's the winter range? Where are the calving areas? Those are the three things that I focus on. And then as you start, then I dive in, I start diving in with Google earth and picking it apart and just seeing what the terrain looks. I'll lay things down and move it around and kind of get an idea what the terrain looks like. And I'll start looking for possible water sources. I'll look for possible feeding areas. I will look for, you know, flat spots on the side of the mountain where there might be a bench or a saddle. You know, where are the north face, east face? What, you know, what, what's the juxtaposition of everything? And once I start realize, okay, this is where they normally summer. This is where they normally winter. These are the calving areas. Okay, how do these all connect? How does it lay out on the mountain? From there, it really does boil down to boots on the ground. Now, for those that are hunting from out of state and don't have the physical ability to run boots on the ground. Okay. Yeah. You're at a disadvantage, but you can pick up a lot from Google earth. And you know, I I do, I spent a lot of time on Google earth before I ever put a boot on the ground. So. Awesome. Uh, that's great stuff. I know, um, when I'm looking at new units in new uh, states, uh, you know, the title sponsor of our podcast is GoHunt.com Insider, and um, they've, they've got some incredible mapping resources and, and statistical data and temperature data and precipitation totals and such. So it's another great resource. Yeah, I forgot about um, that. Yeah, no, you and precip- that's you nail the precipitation and what's been going on with the rain is great. You're absolutely right. Forgot about that. You know, Chris, I wanted to talk to you today about uh, your preparation for elk season as far as uh, your gear prep and mental prep and and some of the things. Um, Can you touch on uh, the upcoming season and and in years past uh, your experience of uh, for some of the guys out there that are maybe new and some of the guys that are advanced um, go through some of your elk prep uh, stages? Well, I kind of... I always like to have options, and I sometimes I think I, I'll be on, I'll be the first to, to admit that sometimes that kind of interferes with with my planning. But I always like to have a plan A, you know, my primary. This is what I'm going to do, and if that doesn't work, I've got a plan B. And so for me, I do both. I, I've got my camper that's on the back of my truck. Um, I will have I will run my camper type setup and I will hunt from the camper on some of my areas, but I also will hunt some of the backcountry areas. And so that's kind of what I do is I will set up, I'll get my backcountry gear ready to go in my backpack. So if I want to camp, I've got it. I can just grab the backpack and go. But me, but the same token, I'll have stuff stashed in my truck, water, you know, other food and et cetera in my truck. So if I want to hunt out of the camper and for me, 
my prep also hinges on how our season structure kind of shakes out. In Colorado, we we don't have a fixed it's not fixed on a calendar date. It's fixed based on how the weekends fall. And we always start on the last Saturday of August. Well, that fluctuates. Some years that means it might be August 24th or 25th. Some years it means it might be August 31st. So there's a full week of vari- you know, variability in there. Well, me being the behavior guy, I can tell you that for especially those folks that want to hunt the high country, elk move. They're, they can be highly migratory. Now, some areas, the elk will stay above timberline, up on the alpine, the entire season. And in some places, the pressure from down low in the valley will actually send elk up into the high country. Whereas, there are other areas where the elk will leave the high country just because of the of the way their behavior cycle is and, and how, the, you know, they the cows and calves are up on the, the, the alpine. Bulls come in, they split up the groups, and all of a sudden the cows just venture out and they head back, whether it's their calving areas, they drop down in the timber or whatever, they just kind of generally vacate the area. So where I hunt, my high country camp, where, where you know, the previous episode we were talking about that, that hunt that I did there um, and, and videoed it, that is my high country camp. That's one of my high country camp areas. Well, unfortunately for me, the just normal behavior cycle is that those animals generally leave that area by about anywhere between August 28th to August 31st. They're, they're doing that pre-rut move and they're, they're moving. So there might be 150 to 200 head of elk up there right now. Come September 1st, 2nd, 3rd, there might be one group and just did just the whole place vacate. So, for me this year, I'm looking at our start date, which is what, August 29th. I know that if I pack in to my high country camp, I'm going to be catching the tail end of that pre-rut move. And so I'm going to have to have the ability to capitalize on any opportunities that are presented within that first weekend. And this year, I'm fortunate, uh, my brother is actually coming out. He's just getting into hunting. We've never hunted together before. We've never gone on a trip like this before, but we've always talked about it. And so this year, we just—I mean, we, like we were talking about before—you know—we just finally, you know, you, you're never going to find time to do anything. You just got to make the time. And so we just said this year, we, you know, we get a piss or get off the pot, and we got to make it happen. So he's going to come out, and he's going to run the hills with me. He's not going to hunt. He's just going to come along with me. So he's from Virginia. So I mean, he's at what 200 feet elevation. So I've got to kind of play around with, do I go to the high country camp? Can he, you know, can he hang with me up there? And then if not, then I'm going to drop down in elevation down below 10,000 feet and I'll probably car camp or truck camp and then just do little spike camps from there. Uh, running some of the lower elevation stuff, some of the Aspen areas, some of the areas where the, where the, where the elk are likely to move to once they leave that high country. So right, that's what I'm doing right now is juggling. Uh, how and where I'm going to go, but okay, Chris. So you're trying to figure out where you're going to go, and you're going to have multiple spots picked out. Um, talk to me a, a little bit about the gear that you use and some of the gear that that you found over the years has been beneficial for you. Well, for this year, I will admit I I am going to make a a pretty decent change in the fact that. This will be one of the first. Now, we, I, I guess I need to take a step back from what I said before. A lot of folks that know me know that we have horses. I, I normally will pack in with horses. Ninety percent of the time, I'm using my horses to either pack in camp or, at the very least, pack the elk out. So, um, for me this year, however, now that we live in Kansas, we're a little bit farther away. I'm juggling that that opportunity whether or not I'm going to be able to to take the horses with me or not. So, I'm 43 years old. Um, I'm probably not in shape as the way I used to be. I tell people, I just don't bounce anymore. You know what I mean? So my muscles get a little tighter. They they get a little sore. I have really this year focused on what am I going to do to cut weight and maximize my comfort in in packing in. So I've made some changes on what I'm going to be hiking and, and packing in with my backpack. Uh, I with, uh, you know, I'm going to use, tre- I've never used trekking poles before, but I'm, 
I'm probably going to be using trekking poles this year. Um, the backpack that I, I, I'm going to switch to this year, it's an expensive one. It's the Kafaru. Uh, I'm going to use the, um, AMR. They've, they've got piles of different backpacks, but, and we can talk about that in the future if you want, or people can private message me, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I've got a backpack that's very, very lightweight, but it is extremely, extremely comfortable. And I think one thing that I, I, that I know, and I've told my brother this too, the older you get, or if you're just not in shape, cutting weight is good. Every ounce that you put on your body is you just, you know, over time is just going to wear on you. So you want to cut weight as much, as much as possible. However, there is the flip side of that is if you cut too much weight, you can some, you know, oftentimes you're going to sacrifice either durability or you're going to sacrifice comfort. And so you've got to find the fine line between that. And so with the backpack that I've chosen, you know, with the Kafaro backpack, I think I've chosen that wisely. It's extremely comfortable. It carries weight very, very well, very, very durable, extremely lightweight. But I'm also thinking about making a change on my tents as well. We'll see. Uh, the tents I have now are you're just your normal three-season, four-season type tents, have the floor, have the screen netting and everything else, but they weigh about four to six pounds. Well, there's better options out there, whether you're talking about uh, tarps, whether you're talking about teepees. I think I'm going to try playing around with not only the tent this year, but also a, a mega tarp, just using it, basically stretching it over with, you know, propping it up with the, with the trekking poles. It's going to be a floorless design, which is going to be interesting for me. I, it, you know, some of the areas where I hunt in have a lot of mosquitoes. And so when you're ever you're running a floorless design, whether you're talking about a, a mega tarp or a paratarp or anything like that, or whether you're talking about a wall tent. If you've got a, a floorless design, you can get mosquitoes and bugs coming in there. But the benefit from a backpacking standpoint is now, I mean, my shelter is going to weigh one to two pounds. And it's still going to be worthy of, you know, snow and everything else. So that's really my, for me, I'm, I'm cutting my weight and I, for my backpack and I'm cutting my weight on my, my shelter. I'm still going to run my normal food. I really do lean heavily on Mountain House uh, meals. Uh, they're lightweight. They're tasty. They got a lot of, you know, they've got a lot of food to them. What are your favorite flavors? You know what? I sit there and I, I actually look at the ones that have the highest protein. Uh, the the turkey tetrazzini, the chicken a la king, the you know, and all of those are are phenomenal. They've got great. They got a high amount of protein. Good calorie content. They taste awesome. The lasagna, let me give everybody a tip. This this is free. Good tip. Here you go. Do not take lasagna into the backcountry with you. Okay? It is awesome. It tastes awesome. It's got some of the greatest, uh, the highest amount of protein to it. But I don't know what they use for their cheese. But their cheese could be used as industrial strength glue to glue the, the, the heat tiles on the bottom of the space shuttle. Okay? <laughs> you, you mix... You mix that up in your, in, with your fork, you're, you're not getting your fork clean. You just, you're just not. You, it, it's a nightmare to clean. It's tasty. It's a nightmare to clean. So I stick with the chicken, turkeys. Um, their macaroni and cheese is pretty good. So they're, you know, beef stews and all that type are, are good. I try to pick the ones that have the highest protein but lowest sodium. And you know, there's people that that you know rag on Mountain House or Backpackers Pantry or you know, oh, good low you know. I don't know. I, it's always worked well for me. If you look at it and yet you say, okay, it's, it has 20% or 30% of your daily allowance of, of, of um, sodium intake, and then you realize there's two or two and a half servings in that pouch, you go, oh my gosh, you're 60% of your sodium intake. Well, I, the way I look at it, I, maybe I'm, I'm not a nutritionist. I don't know. But I look at it from a standpoint, it's, well, it's 60% of what you could have. So it's, I don't know. I, I, I like Mountain House. They're lightweight. They fill me up. They energize me. I, too, I do take a protein uh, powder supplement with me. I'm a firm believer in just the, I, and I don't care whether it's Wilderness Athlete, Mountain Ops, whether you get the stuff from Walmart. I don't care where you get it. You, everybody has their own uh, personal preference. I think one of the things that people need to do, when, especially if they're going to be on an extended backpack trip um, and they're just bit wearing themselves down, take some protein powder, take some protein supplement because 
the more you're using your legs, especially if you're not in, op, you know, the uber fitness, you're tearing down your leg strength and your stamina every day. The stuff that you eat in your meals, if you can pack the protein in it, great. But still, most of the time, we're either coming short of our daily allowance of what we should have with protein or we're at least meeting it. Well, that doesn't – that means that's for maintenance. That's just for your everyday maintenance of what you need dietarily. I like having a protein supplement that I can, you know, mix up with a shake or something like that and just sock it to me, especially when it, right before I go to bed. I will tell you I have noticed a huge, huge amount of benefit from how I feel the next day. My legs are recovered. I've got my energy. My strength is back. When I did not take that protein powder with me, I would just wear down, and by the end of the week, I'm cashed. I'm done. There's nothing in the tank. Now that I take the protein supplement and I, and I keep it and I, and I use it you know, religiously each day, I can last that week and, and still come out the other end pretty darn pretty darn strong. So food, that those two things right there, I'm you know, cutting my weight and making sure I have the protein. Um, this year, I kind of added, uh, uh, I added the Life Straw water filter to my kit only because I just don't like carrying water. I mean, I, mo- you know, most people are carrying a water bladder on their back and you're carrying several liters of water or quartz or whatever you want to call it. Well, that's a lot of weight to carry. You know, where I hunt, especially this year, we've got so much water everywhere. There's water everywhere, but it's not filtered. In the past, I would carry just water with me and maybe a, a pump filter that, you know, would weigh several ounces and take up a little room in my backpack. This year with that Life Straw, started playing around with it. I really like it. I'm just going to take the Life Straw with a Ziploc bag, dip the light, dip the Ziploc bag under the water, fill it up, sit there and sip on it with my little Life Straw. It weighs like two or three ounces. I don't know, it's stupidly small and lightweight. Um, and they work great. They work great. So that's going to help me a little bit more for my hydration because I think that's another thing that people limit themselves in the backcountry. That video, again, if I go back to our previous episode, we were talking about that, that hunt. In there, I talk about the fact I ran out of water. I, I didn't pack enough water with me. I didn't bring my filter like an idiot. And so I ran out of water, and man, I was hurt. And if you're dealing with high elevation stuff, staying hydrated is one of the ways to make sure that you do not, you know, that you're less susceptible to altitude sickness. So that's another thing I added this year, so, so I can have water with me everywhere I go. However, I don't need to carry it. So those are the big changes, I think, this year. And a good, uh, and I guess the other thing, too, is making sure I have a good sleeping pad. I've got that X-Ped um, Sinmat 7 or Sinmat 9. I don't know. I don't remember which one it is, but it's a nice, big, fluffy, soft, comfortable, <laughs> comfortable bed so I don't have to wake up with aches and pains in the morning anymore. And it's stupid, stupidly lightweight and small and compact. So, Chris, walk me through a day uh, starting out at breakfast, uh, mid-morning, uh, lunch, dinner. Tell me how you're going to space out your meals and kind of how you're going to do it. All right. Well, yeah, and, and I'm going to make a change on that this year. Again, I don't bounce the way I used to anymore. I don't, I don't recover the way I used to do. And yeah, you can say I'm getting old, but I feel I'm only 43. That's not old, dang it. I, I, it's not. So, but I'm right behind you at 42. Yeah, so I hear you exactly. So in the past, see, I and, and everybody is different. And so this is something I think folks ought to take the time to maybe a couple days, maybe a week before, just start playing around with your meal, meal, the the actual meals that you're going to eat and how you're going to prep the meals and how you're going to eat through the day and just get your body kind of used to a change. Cause most of us, you know, you know, if you're working, we get up in the morning, we drive to work, we stop at Starbucks, we get a muffin and a, and a coffee. And then we get what that routine is not going to be up in the mountains. Well, our body gets used to a routine, whether we're talking about our business in the bathroom or whether we're talking about our energy cycle and our blood sugar cycle. So, Play around with your change in diet and what you're going to do up in the mountain at least a few days before season and get yourself used to it and see how your body acclimates to it and, and just just play with it. So I am actually going to make a, a change this year a little bit because I am not a person that usually – when I wake up in the morning, I don't usually have a big breakfast. I'll have a, a – you know, a, a smoothie. My wife makes them now. They're awesome. You know, just fruit and yogurt and protein. And, and it's awesome. 
and it, it fills me up for the morning and gets me going, but then I'll have a decent lunch or something and then roll into dinner, etc. Well, in the past, what I have done is, you know, I'll have maybe a couple granola bars or a couple protein bars when I wake up. I'll drink, you know, a whole bunch of, uh, you know, whether it's, again, wilderness athlete, you know, there's mountain ops, not, uh, mountain ops supplements now, but I've used, always used wilderness athlete, their hydrate and recover stuff just to hydrate and get, you know, all the electrolytes up and I'll get, and I'll just head out from there and I'll have a bunch of protein bars and snack bars and, and maybe a little bagel sandwich or, you know, some people call it butthole sandwich, but, and I'll take that with me. Well, what I'm going to do this year is I'll probably get up and do the same thing you know, have my granola bar or whatever, I'll head out and in my backpack, because now it's a little bit lighter, I can now, I've got a little tiny pack, you know, my little pack stove and I've got my little canister of, you know, really, really lightweight canister of fuel. I'm going to pack in my backpack with me both, I think, my mountain house breakfast, my eggs or my egg scramble or whatever, and then also probably my meal, my mountain house meal for the evening. And then I'll go out, I'll have a, you know, wake up, have a granola bar or maybe a, a protein bar or two in the morning, hydrate, get drank up, pack out, you know, head out, go do my morning hunt. And then when the elk start bedding down or when you start hitting that mid morning low, I'm going to stop, break the little stove out. I'll, I'll make breakfast right then and there. I think that'll do better for me in my normal dietary cycle. Have a good breakfast, you know, really kick start my calorie intake right then and there you know whether i hunt that afternoon if the wind is right you know i'm a i i do like hunting midday hunts if 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 the wind is right if that's the case i'll hunt through those midday hours if it's not then i'll just sit up on the mountain and glass mule deer or i'll go prospect other areas and see what's going on and then probably before the evening hunt, I will go ahead and have my big meal, my normal mountain house meal on the mountain right then, right then and there, and then go in and have my evening hunt. So that way, when I get back to camp, I'll have my, my bagel sandwich or whatever, because a bagel sandwich, I, you know, I've got bagel, peanut butter, and bacon. May I don't know if I'm going to do honey. I ran into, you know, a lot of people have a bacon, you know, bagel, peanut butter, bacon, and honey awesome awesome meal tastes pretty good the problem with honey is it's sticky and it gets everywhere in the past i've i've carried that in my backpack with me and then you know it's in the ziploc bag and it just gets gooey in my finger eh. i'm thinking about just leaving all that back in camp and flipping it because usually i would get back to camp at nine or ten o'clock at night and then here i do a gut grenade of a <laughs> huge huge mountain house meal which is fine but the problem is I usually end up having to wake up about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning and i got to pee. And I hate getting out of my sleeping bag. <laughs> so I think I'm going to switch it this year and have my meal before I actually make my hunt in the evening so my body handles it a little bit better. It has a little bit more time to recover. Um, but that's what I plan on doing this year. I, I went ahead and picked up some of the Mountain House breakfasts just to get a little bit more nutritional content, a little bit more calories to help me recover. And uh, I'll save my sandwich and my protein shake for the evening when I want to recover after the long day. Yeah, I'll be interested to see how it works uh, works for you. Uh, I want to shift gears a little bit, unless you think there's more that you want to tell us about getting ready for the season. Uh, I want to shift gears to um, glassing sure. and glassing bulls and why. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I, I, you and I talked about this briefly you know, before. And actually I've listened to a couple of your previous podcasts, one with, uh, Steven Ronella. And then I think it was the A3 hunts on the, the bull that, that giant, giant bull that they just killed. There were, yeah. you guys were talking about glassing and it was kind of interesting because that was at the exact same time I was editing the video that we talked about in the previous episode, uh, the high country redemption, because in that episode, me glassing that bull was a big part of the success or the, the, the calling strategy that I was going to choose. And, and quite honestly, I, I'm, I'm kind of interested in getting your take on some things as well. You know, we, you hear people talk about glassing and, and let's, let's take your example for a minute. You know, you're in Arizona. There's some places where you can get in vantage point. In, to where you've got some open habitats where you guys can find bulls 
and identify, oh, that's a shooter, that's a big bull, but he's kind of second tier or whatever. And you guys can, you know, find individual bulls that you guys want to go after. The same thing is true for us Western hunters. But I think some folks shortchange themselves on what they do with their glassing because you know we, we you know I'm getting ready right now next week I'm or well I by the time this airs I don't know I'll probably be just getting back but I'm gonna head up and do some preseason scouting I'm gonna go to the high country camp and just kind of do some glassing and see what animals are there however during the season while I'm actively hunting if I'm hunting up in the high country where I've got a, uh, an opportunity to glass one thing that I, I would I think folks need to do more of is, yes, sit behind your glass, sit behind your binoculars, your spotting scope, or whatever, and and find out, A, where the elk are, and find out whether, you know, if you will have the luxury of picking multiple bulls, you can see multiple groups of elk, and you can choose, pick and choose which one you want to go after. Sure, go after the biggest one, or the one that you think you can get on and work. But don't just stop there. I really do take stock in watching them for a little bit and figuring out exactly what that bull is doing. Now, in I think your situation here in in a, in a couple seconds here, I'm going to kick it over to you and find and ask you the question. But I think for us here in Colorado and a lot of folks that hunt public over the counter areas, you know, we don't have a preponderance of big mature bulls running around, old bulls. We have a lot of younger age class bulls and then a couple medium age class bulls. And different bulls will end up being the herd bull depending on the basin that they're in. And so the age structure and how that bull interacts with cows can give you a clue as to how, you know, how you want to might go after them and work them with a call and whether or not they're going to be susceptible to a call in the first place, or if they're going to be susceptible to cow calls, or maybe you're going to have to, you know, what everybody loves to do, you know, that, that sexy side of elk calling, the challenge, you know, challenge them with, with big, aggressive, dominant bugles or whatever. If you sit and watch what that bull is doing, a lot of times you can pick up on those clues. You know, it, is the bull with the cows, and he's a younger age class bull, and he's just there with the cows because they're his safety blanket and he's really not a herd bull. He's just with them. If that's the case, well then, okay, you might be able to get in there and creep in there and you could probably throw any cow call at him and, and very well likely be able to call him in versus in the hunt that we were just, you know, that, that high country redemption hunt. Um, in this case, he was acting as a herd bull, but he was, sorry, he was acting as a herd bull, but he was a young bull, and he was just pushing the cows around for no reason. He didn't need to be pushing those cows around. but So he was pushing them. He was eager. He was interested. He was all hyped up, but he was also off on his own every now and then, and he didn't mind being off on his own. Well, that told me right then and there, oh, yeah, this bull is killable. I mean, I can call that. You get in there. You get in close. You throw him a targeted strategy of cow calls, and that bull is dead. Whereas there's been other times where I'll sit and watch bulls, especially if you find those big mature bulls and he's a herd bull, he's barely bugling, he's just feeding, he's maybe making the rounds of his cows, he's not chasing anybody, he's not, he is locked down with those cows, he's letting those cows do whatever, he, whatever they want to do, and he ain't leaving them. Well, if I see a bull like that, well now I know my work's going to be cut out for me because I'm probably not going to be able to call him away with cow vocalizations. The cows he's with are probably not going to want to be around other cows, and so they might be call shy. I might have to be very target or very strategic in how I approach that group, whether I need to use bugles to engage them. You know, if you sit and watch and spend some time watching their behavior, I think you can really cut down your learning curve on what you need to do when you do finally get over there. So my question for you is, in Arizona, what you guys do do you do that kind of same thing, or in you because because you guys deal with a situation where you have just you've got mature bulls everywhere? So how much do you pick apart the behavior of that bull versus big antlers? He's a shooter. Let's go, Chris. That's a great question, and I'm going to start out by saying, no matter what unit in Arizona or wherever I'm hunting, and 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 honestly, this this 
can uh, be used for most all the animals that I hunt. The very first thing that I'm going to do uh, when I when I get to the unit or am looking at hunting a new unit is I'm going to find as many of the strategic glassing points as I can find. So I'm going to try and uh, detect where are the high points, whether it be a you know thousand foot uh, elevation change or a, a 200 foot elevation change. Where are the little knobs? Where are the high points? You know, where are the areas where I can get up and gain the advantage of visually being able to look over the country? With that, I like to sit up and scout. And most hunts, I like to scout, you know, 10, 10, 14 days before the season and really study the behavior of the animal, whether it's elk, deer, sheep, whatever it may be. Same thing with turkeys, actually. I like to get up high. I like to glass turkeys up. I like to try and watch and see what their movement patterns are. But speaking specifically with elk, absolutely. I like to get up on knobs and glass off different points and try and figure out, number one, where the big bulls are, number two, where the cows are, uh, and number three, what are they doing? And absolutely look at the behavior of, of the elk and you know look at where they're going in and out of the trees you know, which way do they come to the water in the evenings? You know, where are they bedded? You know, where's their direct line between them and the water? Because a lot of times, you know, the units that I hunt are, are limited to stock tanks. And it's amazing how they'll get up out of their beds. And sometimes they'll just make a direct beeline for that water. And so as I'm glassing, I'm making mental notes of all of these different behaviors, specifically talking about bulls and, and how those bulls behave. More than anything, I'm trying to find, uh, because we live in a very trophy-oriented state and, and most of the guys that come down and hunt with me and when I hunt on my own tags, I want to harvest the very uh, best animal that I can with the biggest rack. That's just how I like to hunt. And so most of the time, to answer your question, I'm just trying to find the biggest bull. And then once I find what I think is the biggest bull in that area, then I try and learn everything that I can about that bull. You know, what are his habits? Does he leave his cows? Does he fend off other bulls? Do bulls that come into the group, do they do they bother him at all? Does he pay him any attention at all? You know, is he very aggressive by chasing off those satellite bulls? And I'm making mental notes of all this because if there's a bull that is very aggressive and is going to chase off a satellite bull that and, 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 and leave his cows that are out in an open and, you know, leave and go 100 or 200 yards to chase off another bull, I'm going to know that that's going to give me an opportunity either A, for a great calling position or calling strategy, or B, can be able to, I can close in there close to those cows, let the big herd bull go chase off this satellite bull, knowing that he's going to return into me. And I think that's a very deadly tactic uh, that, that, that hunters can use is being aware of uh, what those elk are doing and what specifically what those bulls that they're targeting are doing. If you've got a bull that very rarely leaves the herd and he doesn't pay much attention to some of the satellite bulls that come around, like you said, you're going to have your hands full because, uh, you know, if, if, if he's not going to leave that group, you're going to have, you know, 26 eyeballs looking in your direction. Yeah. You're going to have 26 noses uh, being able to smell you, hear you, what have you. Um, so absolutely um, interesting. Uh, back in 2012, uh, uh, my client had already filled out and I bumped over to help Dar in the same unit. We were camped in the same, out of the same camp. And I was up on a knob and I had witnessed the seven by seven bull that they had killed a couple nights previous and he was all by himself and he was kind of raking a tree and and but not real aggressive and he was kind of feeding and that same morning i saw a bull that that was much bigger than in the bull end up being a you know a, you know 380 type of a, a bull um seven by seven but there was a bull that was bigger and it was interesting uh to watch the behavior of the seven by seven was in the opening with the cows and bugling and you know acting like he was the show and all of a sudden this big six by six cracks out into the opening and literally looks like a tyrannosaurus rex i'll never forget like you know in the movie jurassic park when they when they when he bugled 
that seven by seven basically just I mean tucked his tail yeah. and just just scampered out the back towards the trees and you know Dar ended up ca- calling that bull straight in I want to say uh, a day later and it just goes to show that you know that bull was not the dominant bull the six by six was but that six by six obviously had kicked him off of the cows um and that seven by seven became vulnerable. Yes, he was not the dominant bull in the herd, but he was callable because he still wanted, you know, the, the smell was in the air and he definitely wanted to, to uh, pass his genes along. So that bull became very vulnerable. Yeah. And I mean, that's, I mean, it's a great example we talked about before is there's some bulls are lovers and some are fighters. And I mean, yeah, you, you know, people, I don't want to rag on it, but you know, cause it's a, it's a deadly tactic. <clears throat> excuse me, but, you know, some people that want to challenge a bull and go in and bugle at him, that's fine. If you find the right bull that's going to stand his ground and say, oh, I don't think so, well, yeah, he, he, you can get him to come in and get at least get between you and his cows and offer you a shot. But like like you said, there's a seven by seven. He's a giant. One, bu- yeah, one bugle, and he's like, whoops, I'm out of here. Bye-bye. Yeah, he- He's off and running because, and, and, you know, size, size of rack doesn't always mean dominance. As you know, you know, you can have an old five by six that's, you know, an old bull that's just a big body bruiser. And, and, um, I, I think it's very important. I think you bring up a good point. I think more people across the West, no matter what state you're hunting in, if you spend more time observing, I think it, you talk about efficiency, it gives you a much better feeling of behavior and it gives you a much better chance to efficiently get in and harvest that bull. Now, there's some areas that are too thick and glassing isn't uh, isn't an effective tool, but I would argue that most of the states, uh, with the exception of, you know, maybe Oregon, Washington, uh, where you've got really, really thick timber, um, if you can just use the discipline of getting up and spending more time glassing than more time running around and calling um, and chasing bugles, I think you're going to be much more effective. Well, and in my own hunting, I have become more efficient and more effective. And, and I said this on another previous podcast. I mean, there are mornings when with a client, we will not even be engaged on the valley floor in the trees. We will be up on a knob with my client sitting next to me with his bow, not even having a chance to shoot an elk that morning. But what we are doing is trying to figure out exactly where we can jump in there and attack that bull. And, and it all comes down to strategy. And sometimes it takes discipline to resist the urge to want you know they're down there screaming to resist the urge to want to go down there and chase a bull if you're targeting a specific bull there are times when i would rather be up high watching to see what he's doing see where he goes and beds so that that evening we can make a targeted strike and be right there in position where that bull comes out yeah and and i think you nail that see the beautiful thing if people have I know that they have. I mean, folks that have listened to your other podcasts, I mean, you, you were a big coos whitetail hunter, and, and you spent a lot of time behind glass, especially for your sheep hunts and, and your elk hunts and stuff. So I've, you've learned that discipline of how valuable sitting behind glass is. And I think a lot of high country mule deer hunters have learned that because they, send, they spend a lot of time behind spot, you know, the spotting scope or binoculars because they have to figure out where that deer is going, you know, when is he getting, getting up, how is he traveling, where is he traveling, why is he traveling, because that's the only way that you're going to, you you got to get in there, sneak in and ambush him and figure out how to close the distance. There's, there's really, that's what you've got to do. So you kind of have to figure out that pattern. Well, I think some elk hunters, whether we're talking about a 13,000 feet above timberline or whether we're talking like you're talking about, I, you know, I've got some places down south that are, you know, maybe seven, 8,000 feet elevation where I can do the same thing. I don't think some elk hunters, especially folks that are coming from back east or, or out of state or whatever that are just coming out to elk hunt that have never spent a lot of, never used a lot of optics, um, I, you can miss the boat a little bit if you don't just take a little bit of time and watch what they're doing. Now, with that being said, I am not the guy that goes up during my elk hunts with a spotting scope strapped to my back. I don't. I just, I've got my 10 power binoculars and that's all I need. I, I really don't care 
for me, I'm looking across the valley. I don't care if he's a 5x6 or a 6x6 or if he's a 6x6 or a 6x7. I don't care about a, a little secondary. What Does he does he have antlers? Does he look like a, a four-year-old bull? That's kind of my my. I guess my benchmark. I, I, is, is he a, is he a bull that can control cows? Yes. Okay. Then I'm interested in going after him. At yeah. that point, I don't care what his antler quality looks like. I don't need to pick apart pick apart his size. I want to just sit there and say, okay, what is he doing? Why is he doing it? Where is he doing it? And just take a little bit of time of sitting behind a, pet, a, a set of binoculars. So I don't want to. I don't want folks to think that. Uh, and I and I don't mean this to contradict what you just said or disrespect what you just said for me i i don't necessarily sit for day after day after day watching the same group of elk i will sit and watch them for maybe 30 minutes an hour two hours before i go after but at the very least do something sit and watch them long enough to get a feel for what they're doing and how they're doing it and how that bull is interacting with those cows because it can really, really make your effort much more successful if you know what you're getting into before you well, get there. Absolutely, and I think uh, I've got a buddy who uh, lives near Gunnison, Colorado, Steve Winter, and he guides and hunts elk and is an elk nut. And you know, He's always saying, what's the plan? What's the plan? I think it's important for people to have a plan. Yeah. And I, I, I've seen it. A lot, and I, I, I have learned myself over time that when you don't have a plan, things usually don't work too well. So I've found that being observant and being patient and maybe not even going after those elk that you found at you know 4.30 in the afternoon and they're in an upper basin, and yeah, you could get there, but maybe it's better to sit and watch them. Are they going to feed down? Are they going to feed up? Or what are they doing? So that maybe in the morning you can go, okay, I think they're going to be right over here. Here's what our plan is and make a plan of attack. I think a lot of people just fix bayonets and charge in. And I, I you know, we, we uh, in 2000 and let's see, 2011, I was uh, guiding a hunter, uh, Todd Brooks out of Nevada. And um, we, uh, a friend of mine, Cody Nelson, had found a really big bull. And we were hunting a completely different area uh, that that morning. And w- when we came back to camp, uh, Cody's like, I found a big bull. And so he took me out to the point and he's like, okay, right here, right there. They were bedded right here. I bet you if you get over here on these rocks that you'll be right across from them. You'll be able to hear them and then make a plan from there. So I get, and I said, how big? And he says, it's big, Jay. I don't know how big. I said, you know, how big? And he says, ah, it's 370 plus. It's It's a big bull. And so we got over on these rocks, speaking of a plan, and we just are, we were above them, and our idea was just to sit there and, and see exactly where they were, and they turned out that they were right where Cody said. And so the bull started kind of feeding uphill, and the cows were milling around, there were a few little satellite bulls, and I made a huge mistake uh, that, 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 that evening. And the mistake was the bull was right there and he was right there below us and I could see him. But what I realized was he was a giant bull. He was a giant typical six by six giant bull and 400 class bull. And I kind of gave Cody a little bit of a hard time about the bull because I said that that thing's a monster. And Todd and I were looking at him off the rocks at probably 250 yards uh, with 10 power binoculars and he was a giant. Well, I got a little bit impatient because I thought that we could make a move. I I, I stayed where I was. Todd went around the rim rock because the bull was kind of working through the, the only grassy chute. And those elk started feeding through there, and Todd got over there, and I'm just sitting there watching this whole thing. And I said, if you can get to that rock, and if that bull hasn't crossed through, he will walk right through there, and you'll get a shot. Well, we didn't exactly take into consideration when he got over there, what the wind would be doing, what potentially could happen if he spooked. It was an opportunity where we thought, this is a giant, let's go. Looking back, I probably should have just watched him that evening, figured out where he was going to be the next morning and make a better plan. Well, so Todd gets over there on the rocks, the bull's feeding up, the cows have already fed through the thing, everything's working perfectly. Guess what happens? The wind shifts. Wind shifts, the bull spooks, all the elk spook out of the basin, going in every direction. And I watched the bull go 
change directions, come and go right by me and go into another basin. Right, I mean, just ran right underneath me and, and changed complete direction. Todd and I met up in the dark, and then the, the next morning, I went the direction where the bull went. Well, we zigged and the bull zagged, and to make a long story short, uh, an, another outfitter was in there with actually his son that we didn't know. We didn't even know they were in there, and um, we, we didn't know they were in that specific area. We had seen them earlier in a different area, and, and um, we zigged and zagged that morning. They, the bull actually doubled back and went where all the cows went, dumb me. And they killed the bull, and he was like a 408 or 409 typical oh. um, giant bull. And that just goes to show that we didn't make a plan. I, I rushed it, and we made a plan that was not efficient. And I, I found with big animals, well, with any animals, a lot of times, you have to have a plan, and you have to think all aspects through. And then you have to try and carry out the plan as best as possible. And sometimes it takes discipline to back off of something if you know that the, if, if the plan fails, that it's going to really disrupt and screw up the whole deal. So I think, I, think this, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned, and I'm sorry for the long example, but I, I, I think it's important to have a plan to try and be as efficient as you can and use your optics to study the behavior of the animal that you're going after. Yeah, and the uh, two things with that that sparked my thoughts while you're talking is number the other thing too that you can pick up on if you take a little bit of time and watch a lot of times you can pick up on what is the wind doing down there or over there or you know for like high country elevation areas sometimes in the fall the will the willows the subalpine willows will have their little pussy willows or little fuzz or whatever and that'll be floating in the air a lot of times you can see you can actually see the little white fuzz. I mean, from all the way across the valley, there it fuzz, there it goes. You can just watch it drifting. You can watch it moving, and you figure out where things are going. Man, there's some I, – I know for a fact in the past, because I'll, I'll be honest with you, I am guilty of being one of those guys that likes to just go fix bayonets and go. Because Oh, and I've done it a million times too. Trust I me, mean, it's, it's, I, I, it's trial and error. I've, I've done I, it. I love to call. And so I'm like, I see him. Ha ha, he's dead. Go. And so, but there's been some times where, man, the, the best route in on, you know, I'm looking at the train. I'm like, man, I can go right across that bench, cut up through those rocks. I can hit behind those trees, and I could just go, and I can close the distance, and I can get within 80 yards of them. And they'll never have a clue. And wait a minute, oh no, the wind's blowing right at them. And so <laughs> I could have run all the way across that mountain only to get there and go, crap, the wind's at my back. Now what? So yeah, having a plan, it, it, it makes it so much better. And I think. You know, that kind of ties into something else we talked about earlier about, you know, and this is previously and a little earlier today is the fact that, you know, with with calling, you know, I, I talk about the targeted strategy all the time and, and, and folks watch the videos in the strategies and action section. I, I'm almost always not always, but I'm almost always using a targeted strategy. Why? Because it's a it's a solid plan. It makes sense on what you're saying, why you're saying it, how you're saying it. And because you have a good plan, you have the confidence to let it work. And if you have the confidence to let it work, a lot of times it will work. And it gives you a lot more better efficiency and your calling setups, a lot more success in your calling setups. Yeah, it, it all goes hand in hand together. So, yeah, people need to just slow. I think sometimes just slow down. Slow down. Yep, slow yep. down, get a handle of what's going on, and then go with purpose. Yeah, and and – I will add that Todd ended up harvesting a nice seven by seven that went a little over 370. Um, so he ended up, you know, having a great hunt and harvesting a great bull. But I, I, I look back at that opportunity of, of him being able to harvest that bull. And I honestly, honestly believe that if we wouldn't have blown it that night, I honestly believe we could have killed him the next morning. You know, obviously looking back, it's easy to armchair quarterback it, but I would have sure. definitely done things differently. Sure. Um, Chris, uh, I want to thank you again for being on with us. This was a great episode, and uh, 
I look forward to uh, seeing how your elk season plays out, and I wanted to give you a chance to let the J. Scott Outdoors uh, podcast listeners know how they could uh, get a hold of you, how they could uh, follow your stuff, and tell them about the Row Hunting Resources Elk Module. Yeah, so it, the best way to get a hold of me is either through our website, and that's just www.rowhuntingresources.com, R-O-E, huntingresources.com. And yeah, the elk module is in there. You guys can, I mean, they can either sign up for the elk module itself or they can get the full annual access. And like I said before, all of your, all of your listeners, if they, when, if they go to sign up, if there's a little promo code and coupon code box in there, if they just put in there J Scott podcast, all one word, it'll knock 20% off of the subscription. So, if, you know, for the elk module, it's 20 bucks and for the annual, it's 40 bucks. But, um, that's always, I mean, that, that's, that's where the bulk of the comprehensive stuff is, but we also do have our YouTube channel, which is just road hunting resources. Uh, if, if I hunt this year in places where I do have good cell coverage, which might be the case, um, we'll usually run our sweet feeds and I'll have daily updates of what's going on, what we're seeing, you know, just, just general stuff, almost kind of like a live mobile hunt type deal on our YouTube channel. And then they can get all, you know, you know, we've got our Facebook page, just row hunting resources and Instagram and that type of stuff. So yeah, no, by all means, get a, get a hold of me if you guys got questions or, or definitely sign up and, and log on to the elk module. Cause I think there's a pile of information there that people could benefit from, especially right here before season. Yeah, I mean, it is single-handedly the best elk resource there is available. I can attest to that. Uh, Chris doesn't pay me a dime. Uh, we're friends. Uh, I, I see the value in what he's doing. I've, I've uh, been a subscriber for years, and, and I love all of the cow vocalizations, the bull vocalizations, but not only that, uh, the targeted strategies and the, and the videos describing what sounds are being made and and uh, why those sounds need to be made and, and how you take that to another level of uh, situational, uh, you know, where the camera is with you, you're showing the entire sequence from start to finish, so you get to see all of the timing and everything with uh, that call in from the very first time you call to the bull's response to the time when there's nothing going on to the time that, okay, the bull responds again, you call again, whatever's happening. Um, I think guys can really learn from it. Uh, I know in the previous episodes when uh, listeners have signed up and subscribed, I've gotten a bunch of emails back saying how much they they uh, really like the Row Hunting Resources Elk module. So um, hats off to you for creating such a great resource. And um, uh, until I talk to you next time, buddy, God bless, okay? Absolutely, you too. And I uh, look forward to seeing how your season kind of shakes out. So. You know, it's um, going to be exciting. I've got a hunter in Unit 9 for the archery hunt. Uh, he's from Oregon. He's killed a bunch of bulls with his bow, and um, this is what he tells me his best opportunity to harvest his biggest uh, antlered size uh, bull. And um, he is uh, sounds like a great guy. I look forward to meeting him. And, um, you know, we've had great moisture in Arizona, and uh, all indication is that our season is going to be good. Uh, the, cow, the cow should be fat and sassy. The bugling should be good. So, um, you know, it's um, going to be a great time, I believe, in Arizona this year. And I think some really nice bulls are going to are going to be harvested. And you know, we went from uh, last fall and into the winter with a real dry winter and mild winter, um, and thinking that potentially antler growth could be rough, but um, you know, we had uh, great spring rains and summer rains, and so uh, anticipation is high for this 2015 season. So, Chris, I'll talk to you after the season, and thanks for being on with us. Absolutely.